but I think there's still that that problem that you know a lettuce that is sitting on a community store shelf in the Northern Territory was probably picked about four to six weeks ago and has probably travelled around 4,000 kilometres to get here. It's been through at least three different distribution and similar warehouses and transport warehouses. You know, when this, when this produce is getting to the community stores, the shelf life on it is a real problem. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Around the world and here at home, especially in remote communities, COVID disrupted food supply chains, especially of horticultural produce. As city supermarkets and supply chains went into crisis mode around toilet paper and more early in the pandemic, many remote communities went into lockdown and food insecurity issues for remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were dramatically exacerbated. Stores couldn't access regular supplies. Many communities and families struggled to access or to buy food and when they could, they often face face skyrocketing food prices, up to 70% plus more. Enabling a regular supply of fresh, healthy food in remote communities is an ongoing challenge, notwithstanding the great role that remote food store operators like Alpa and Outback stores play. But in a changing climate with more extreme weather, heat and wet season supply chain cutoffs, just what sustainable local and regional food might look like and how it might be realised suggests that remote communities could actually be leading the way to grow and to demonstrate the important role that protected agriculture production systems, hydroponics and more, can play for a more secure and sustainable food future. Joining me to talk about what local protected agriculture food systems are, what they look like, and the important role they can and increasingly could play in our food futures, especially in remote areas, is Scott McDonald who is the Horticulture and Training Manager with the innovative and very food productive non-profit organisation Food Ladder. Welcome, Scott. And how's the country looking where you're joining us from in beautiful Catherine in the Northern Territory? Look, it's looking very wet and lush at the moment. Um, after a couple of very bad wet seasons, we've finally got an excellent wet season, uh, but seen extended monsoonal rains, it's seen the river getting close to flood levels. Um, so yeah, it's been great. A little bit of a challenge for for growing things, but it's great to see the the country all properly wet again. And Catherine is just such a beautiful area, right in the heart of so many deep and amazing communities, but also such rich agricultural and ranger programs. Yeah, look, it is. It's an amazing area. I suppose we sit on the border between sort of tropics and desert, so we sort of get influenced from it all. But we've got some amazing national parks. Uh, huge pastoral industry and horticultural industry. 
So, yeah, there's a lot going on in the region. But you have a deep love and understanding of horticulture and of remote communities, and you've worked for over 30 years in horticulture and rural operations in training and education roles in the Northern Territory with Charles Darwin University and with many remote communities. Stepping back, can you tell us a bit about you, how you came to the Northern Territory your previous role with Charles Darwin University and just sort of generally why you love helping people to learn about and produce fresh food. Look, I think it was a it was an urge to travel that got me to the Territory, originally from Victoria. So I came up here, I had family who were living up this way on remote communities. Um, so I ended up travelling up here and I suppose I never, I never left. And initially I was doing all sorts of different projects on communities uh, then I was working doing conservation volunteer programs based out of based out of Darwin. Um, worked for the Darwin City Council in vegetation management, and then yeah, ended up as a horticulture trainer with the university and was head of department there for quite some time as well. And I suppose you know through that role was able to continue working with communities with a horticultural focus. So since leaving the university and coming to Food Ladder. It's been, you know, a huge change coming to an organisation that is small, but an organisation that is working, you know, with a social conscience in the area of sustainable food production and community-based food production. So it's pretty much, you know, passions that I've had for many years. It's being able to now put them into practice. Before we dig in a little bit more to Food Ladder and what you're doing with them, given that you're in Catherine and right in the heartland of uh, many remote communities, can you just... Can you perhaps share some quick reflections on how you saw COVID impact on communities that you that you know of and that you work with in terms of their ability to access food or requests that they might have made to you to help with horticultural supplies and other? Yeah, look, it was, a, I suppose, quite a sudden impact on communities up here because communities were pretty much shut down. So... Every road out to community areas was closed. Uh, they put up essentially border patrols or, you know, roadblocks on, the, on all of those roads. And one of the things they did prior to that was in, encourage, and I think believe there was also funding, to get people back onto their communities. So, you know, people who were living in Catherine or Darwin, Alice Springs, um, there was a big focus to get them back out to the communities where they would be pretty much safer, safer from, from COVID. So communities saw a very sudden influx of population across all the communities and then a sudden shutdown to the outside world. Um, and particularly for the first few weeks, it was, you know, there was a game of catch up that everything was shut down, but you know, no trucks or anyone was allowed to get in. So all of a sudden, yeah, the communities were stores were running out of food. They did fairly quickly from a government point of view, get the, the measures in place to start getting stuff out to communities in a way, you know, stocking the stores, but it was still very problematic. And a lot of that had to do with the, the you know, the increased populations in these in these towns or small communities. So, you know, we we were getting lots of contact from communities on how we could get, be it produce or even seedlings, so food plant seedlings, out to these communities so that they could start doing something on the ground. So, you know, we were able to 
go in a sort of a full swing of production of, of seedlings within our greenhouse in Catherine and able to get them out via health organisations and others to the communities. And that, in some cases, was a case of a vehicle driving to a border checkpoint, unloading stuff, then a vehicle from the other side of the checkpoint, picking up the, the plants and medical supplies or whatever else it was, and then continuing on out to the out to the community. <laughs> COVID biosecurity. COVID biosecurity. And look, the biosecurity has worked, but definitely, you know, the Northern Territory has had no community transmission at all. So, you know, we've been really lucky in that sense. And, you know, the measures that were put in place have worked and have worked quite well, but it was very difficult and it's really brought to into light the issues around food security in remote and regional locations. Scott, we met back in 2009 when we kicked along the Remote Indigenous Gardens Network in various ways uh, to support local food production in and by remote communities. And you were one of Rig Network's founding advisory group members and you kindly hosted one of our first big workshops at CDU in 2010 about local food production, gardens, enterprises, training opportunities and the like. And um, I think we had about over 15 remote communities represented at that workshop and some sort of 70 or so people from across the top end. Pretty interesting discussion really. Reflecting back on that, but more importantly, your much broader and diverse experience, what are some of your personal take-home learnings or or lessons hard learned <laughs> about what works and what doesn't work when it comes to creating and sustaining local food gardens and farms in and with remote community. That's a big question, but it's a good it's a good one because it segues into why food ladder is so important. Yeah, and there has been, you know, I suppose I've seen a lot of a lot of projects start and end start and end in in remote communities around food production. I think for any project to be successful, it has to have full community involvement. And that's not just one organisation saying, hey, we're going to get a garden started and run it. It's about getting all of the organisations and bodies in a community to be involved and to have a level of of buy-in, I suppose. And that, you know, that could be as simple as being involved in programs there. So, you know, we do have the CDEP work for the Dole programs, great opportunities to, to get people through accredited training programs related to horticulture. There's the health departments because they've got a real huge vested interest in nutrition in communities. It's a big problem. So to get health, the local clinics and health staff involved in it as well, to get the local schools involved, uh, there's a lot of really good programs out now related to particularly primary schools and garden programs to get those kids involved as early as possible to look at vocational training for the secondary students that are at the at the schools get the stores involvement so that you know they're in on on it as well now whether they're directly purchasing the produce whether they're just putting their support behind the behind the project so the more the more buy-in you can get Within the community, I think the more successful these these projects are. If one organisation, for some reason, does have to change their priorities, the project's not going to fall over. And there's real buy-in. It's not top-down intervention type stuff. Yeah, they've got to got to want it. Been a lot of a lot of cases where people have gone into communities with best intentions to set up projects, um, but it hasn't necessarily had that you know desire from the community. You know, that's probably one of the, the biggest learnings, I think, that has come out of it. I think one of the other big learnings 
again, it needs to be community driven. They need to be making decisions on what they want to grow and what they want to do with it. Is it a social social enterprise? Is it a commercial enterprise? Or is it a combination of both? Are they growing produce to, to go into the store, to go around the community to feed the people? Are they focusing on bush medicines? Are they focusing on bush food? You know, and what combination? And, and they need to drive that. They need to be on saying, no, we want to grow this and this is what we want to do with that product. And then working with the communities to make that possible. Now, whether that's through hydroponic growing systems, traditional in-ground growing, growing systems, combination of both it's about working with the community to to make what they want to do and they want to achieve and have the conversations and co-design what it is they what it is they're doing yeah scott you're now a key member of food ladder and uh, i understand you're heading up their community outreach their training school and social enterprise projects in the territory and beyond tell us tell us about food ladder what they do and and why you were so keen to join them food ladder i suppose they've been around for quite a few years now focusing on the development of social enterprises. What started with uh, Fair Business in, in New South Wales has now developed into what, it, what is Food Ladder. And Food Ladder's focus is on sustainable community-based food production. And with a focus on controlled environment or protected cropping systems, it's a, it's a decision that's been made to go down that line due to the ability to have a, a quite a sustainable growing system that has the ability to produce produce over a much more extended period, in some cases over a 12-month period, because we can, we can control the climate pretty much. So as an, you know, as an organisation, work within Australia and overseas with projects in India, uh, Uganda and the latest one pre-COVID in Bhutan. Again, working with schools and local communities to to get agriculture back into you know their their lifestyle. Um, and with the projects in India and Uganda, it's very much focused on schools and getting children trained in the production of their food. Within Australia, probably you know our main largest project is here in Catherine, where we've got. Uh, about a 360 square metre climate controlled hydroponic greenhouse uh, that sits on a, an urban site of around 4,000 square metres. So as well as a greenhouse, we've got surrounding garden spaces outside and that is downtown central Catherine. It's pretty much in the CBD di district of Catherine. So it's quite a prominent spot and has developed into quite an urban urban farm or urban community farm with with lots of different community organizations involved in some way or another we also have a, a project down in tennant creek and that's and that's with the education department we've got a large regional training center down there focused on horticulture and agriculture particularly beef cattle and horses and that training center brings students in so vocational vocational high school students in from all over the territory and beyond to do residential programs in those in those fields. So the the greenhouse we've got there again, another climate controlled greenhouse, is part of a an overall farm area, and students are there pretty much every week learning how to how to grow food, and that and that produce is then going into their hospitality programs and into the school 
and that sort of thing as well. So again, quite a quite a different project, but still achieving really good outcomes. Um, we're also focusing on schools now in you know a fairly strong way that we've developed a few different types of greenhouse model. And one we're working with at the moment is a, a small 20 square metre climate controlled hydroponic greenhouse that we're starting to roll out into schools well, all over the country. At the moment, we're still in the territory, but by the end of the year, they'll be hopefully dotted around all over the place. And we're finding that targeting particularly primary schools and middle school is where we're getting the knowledge into the children um, or into young people. And the earlier we get get that, better it sticks. Put, a, put one in in about October last year at a special school, special needs school here in Catherine. And between, you know, in about a six-week period from when we got it up and running to when school year ended, the students there had basically grown a crop of a, of a native basil. They'd harvested it. They'd turned it into a uh, macadamia and basil pesto that they were then selling as a, as a fundraising thing before Christmas. Now, that whole program was done as an educational program, um, a little, you know, agribusiness. Fantastic. So, so you're essentially talking about hydroponics and, and programs based on that agribusiness model for schools to be able to run in these, these greenhouse systems. Look, we haven't, we haven't been doing anything with fish. Mm -hmm. That adds another definite another level of complexity to a hydroponic system. That aquaponic systems are fantastic. It, it gives you a, a nice closed loop system, incredibly sustainable, and you get the benefit of you know, an additional crop being your fish. But where plants, you know, they'll give you a little bit of leeway on the level of love you give them. They'll go a weekend in a hydroponic system without water and you'll save them. With fish, it is much more intensive. It's very much a 365 days a year type thing. So, you know, for some, some communities, some regional areas, it's great. And they, you know, there's some really good programs that are running doing aquaponics production you know in remote and regional areas but it is one that you know needs to be researched properly to make sure that there's the the physical resources um, as well as you know power resources and things like that to make it work and work well yeah yeah i mean a lot of people living in remote areas have backyard aquaponics and hydroponics don't they in catherine and kalgoorlie and alice and so forth because technically what you're focusing on is something that's really doable really achievable yes and is going to deliver so um in terms of innovative fit for purpose protected agriculture production that's effectively what you're doing it's hydroponics in a protected environment in a heating climate on a hot planet. And it's something that perhaps many of us in cities don't realise that we're consuming all the time. Like whenever we buy those beautiful stem-produced tomatoes in Coles, Woolworths or Harris Farm, they're actually from a protected agricultural environment 99% of the time. Yes. <laughs> Tell us just a little bit, who's technically behind and advising the fit-for-purpose systems, skills and knowledge that you and Food Ladder are offering to remote communities? I know that I know that you're an expert in the field, but I understand you've also got one of the world's leading experts who's doing a lot of very high-tech work uh, with CRCs on food futures and elsewhere as part of your team. Tell me about him. Yeah, we do. Graham Smith, he is definitely one of the lead, lead industry people in the protected cropping in industry and he's essentially been a, a consultant with Food Ladder 
for quite a few years. Personally, I've got, you know, horticulture background. My colleague, Nigel, has a um, hydroponic production background. And Graham has got the ability to give us the high-level technical advice to be able to make sure that the systems that we're designing and putting into, into communities are the best fit for those communities. And with hydroponics now, the, the technology available is phenomenal, the, the level of what you can do to manipulate the environment to produce plant. It can be done inside shipping containers and buildings and all sorts of amazing things. What we're doing is looking at all of that technology and then putting it into a package that is going to work best in a remote and regional location. So in a way, we're, we're stripping it back to say, well, what are, what are the important things? We need to be able to cool a greenhouse. Catherine, our daily temperatures can push mid-40s for several months of the year. You get down into regions around Tennant Creek, it can be pushing close to 50 at certain times during the year. Uh, with a, a good cooling system, which is an evaporative cooling system, we can keep temperatures in the greenhouses to around 32 degrees. So that's probably one of the, the most crucial crucial elements. We're also looking at all of the irrigation technologies uh, that are available and, again, stripping them back to something that's going to work for a community in a remote location. We're setting up systems that can now be monitored remotely um, so that, you know, wherever myself or my colleagues are, we can check on check on the irrigation systems with with these greenhouses, but also the technology in the greenhouse is technology that we know we can quite easily train people to use, be it school teachers, students, or anyone else on a community. What about nutrients and seed stock or seedling stock? How complex is that? Look, the, nu the nutrients are surprisingly fairly straightforward because we're we're targeting specific crops. Um, for our, particularly our project here in Catherine in Tennant Creek, we get we get our nutrients made up for us to suit the crop that we're growing and the water that we have. So we can send water samples down to our the nutrient company. Um, they'll then put together the um, it's a, a dry powder nutrients uh, based on based on that. So what that means is that we can manage our, our, particularly our pH levels in our water, water systems very easily through that process. So we're designing it specifically for the individual community. With the smaller systems and they're growing you know, a range of different crops, um, it's very readily available nutrients that are out there now for those for those systems to the point where you know, the school systems for a six to eight week growing cycle they make the tank up with nutrients once and they don't need to add more nutrient to that to that tank for that period of you know 10 week period of time so it is about keeping the technology there but keeping it very user friendly um, you know even the design of our greenhouses we've taken into consideration the the challenges of being in remote areas so uh, we're using a um, a clear polycarbonate sheeting and it's incredibly strong. It'll withstand dust storms. It'll withstand, you know, rocks or anything like that. So, you know, right down through to that design, we're thinking of what's going to work best, what's going to last, what's going to be, be sustainable. And I suppose the big thing with Food Ladder is that when we start a project, technically we probably never finish that project. We're always 
involved and part of that that program. Um, so we'll you know we'll assist or build build the infrastructure ourselves. We'll train the community people or the school in how to how to run it and how to manage it. Uh, we've got a huge suite of online online resources available to communities through our online food ladder knowledge sharing platform, and we're always available by phone and email. So, you know, two three years down the track, any problems they can ring us up. We'll work with them. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand from the website and from chats that you and I have had that. As you say, the systems are, de- are designed with the best cutting-edge current knowledge and technology, but to be resilient and sustainable in remote and in remote contexts, you know, uh, where there's not immediate people on hand, but things can be supported remotely, like the irrigation and so on, and that they're appropriate for temperate and tropical environment. Yep. Also on the website, she talk talks about how. Food ladder has um, sort of generally works with two sizes: the twenty square meter ones that you mentioned for schools, and ninety square meters for larger community content. Mm-hmm. Very ballpark. How much food can they produce, and for how many people? Let's talk about a ninety square meter one, for example. It's always a, a good a good question because you know I can I can turn probably about five square meters of growing space into about a kilo of leafy green fresh leafy greens and I suppose that's how we look at it with a with a hydroponic growing system it's your your production output per square over what time um, over what time our leafy greens are about five to six weeks from from that sense we really do speed up the growing cycle all our leafy greens and herbs are on a are on a six week six week growing cycle with our vine crops you know we can do at least uh, probably about an eight month growing season for tomatoes we can be picking anything up to a, a kilo per square meter for for a season up to probably up to around three kilos per square meter again there's you know so many variables that come into play with a with any food growing system sorry this is a probably a really ignorant question is it more productive or less productive than the tomato vines in the ground in a community garden look definitely more productive it's intense and we can be more productive because we're Again, we're targeting, we're getting the climate right, we're getting the exact nutrients right, the exact irrigation right. Again, the term protected cropping, we are protecting the, the crop against the worst of the elements. So we don't get anywhere near the disease issues or pest issues that you would get with outdoor production. We're using a lot less water because you know we've got huge control over our irrigation to make sure our plants get exactly what they need with pretty much you know very minimal evaporation and no leaching half of our one of our or two of our main types of growing systems are a return system um so you know around 10 square meters of growing space for leafy greens uses around 10 to 15 liters of water per day to water them um so incredibly efficient our tomato plants they get around five and a half liters of water per day per plant so we can be very controlled on that, which means you sort of get you're getting higher outputs for less for less inputs. And for remote communities, when it's a crazy wet season or just an outrageous summer, or people are off on sorry business, or you know school school term finishes, the beauty the beauty of these systems is that you can turn them off and you can turn them on. Yeah, and look, that's one of the things we're finding as a huge benefit for particularly the school systems is that. You know, having a six six week growing 
growing cycle fits so beautifully into a 10-week school term. So we can have students that turn up in week one, they work out what they, what they want to grow, get their planning in place. Week two, they're sowing the seeds and starting the system up. Um, they've then got their six weeks of growing. They then have that period of time at the end to harvest, process, uh, value add or whatever they're going to do with it. And then you're right, they, at the end of term, you drain the tank, you turn off the PowerPoints, close the door and you can head off on, you know, four weeks holidays, six weeks holidays, whatever the, the school terms. There's not that need for, for maintenance or management over the school holidays, which, you know, sat, unfortunately has been a bit of an issue with outdoor school food gardens. Um, then there's some great programs that are, that are running in that space, but it's always been one of the problems of schools is that, is that holiday period and what they do with the garden over that time. Mm, and coming back to something that looks run down and so people are a bit disinclined or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, so you and your fabulous CEO, Kelly McJanet, plan to roll out something like 10, at least 10 new school food ladder systems by the end of 2021. You've already spoken about the fantastic Kintour Street School project. I was going to ask you about that, but, you know, you've, you've given us a lovely overview of the benefits there. To help get the 10 new school systems into communities by the end of 2021, you are running a rather fun-looking competition that's open now until May the 1st, and schools can get, get the chance to win a system that's valued up to $15,000 or something. Tell us about that competition and, um, you know, the level of interest in it so far and, and who you'd really like to reach to enter that, not the competition, but to, to buy into the community and get all your resources and mm. one or two will be lucky enough to actually get the physical system. Tell me about that. Yeah, look, it's a, I suppose it's a great opportunity and that's got a lot to do with the philanthropists and and donors that Food Ladder have that, you know, we we got the ability to be able to put it out there and say, well, we've got these systems and we want to give them to the schools to be able to meet, meet our, I suppose, all our overall goals of educating people and about food and nutrition. The, the competition itself, it's, you know, we're, we're looking for schools that I suppose that have got a commitment to kitchen kitchen garden type programs or paddocks of plate type programs. And there's lots of them. There are lots of them. We're working with um, disadvantaged schools already, uh, remote community schools to to be able to build their build their program. So Scott, is it fair to say you'd like to see these systems rolled out with um, as you say, schools that have kitchen garden or paddock to plate type programs that can, you know, do the whole life cycle of where your food comes from and how to enjoy it and why it's good for you. But presumably for schools that are a bit disadvantaged or in a remote area where it can add to food security and um, local skills and knowledge. Is that is that a fair overview? Yeah, look, that's, that's definitely a fair overview. Um, and that's fitting with Food Ladder's overall goals of, of wanting to improve the health and nutrition of remote and regional regional communities. But regional, you know, Catherine, we're looking at a population of probably around 12,000 people, pro projects that work really well here. Right in the middle of a build in the community of Ali Karung, which is between Tennant Creek and Alice Springs. And that's a community that is really getting involved in agriculture to the point where they've reintroduced senior schools, so year 10 to 12, 100% based around horticulture programs. So they're working with an organisation called Centre Farms that are setting up a training centre in Ali Karung with the idea 
that children in primary school and middle school will be exposed to the 20 square metre greenhouse, hydroponic greenhouse at the school. They'll learn about those systems and about growing systems as part of their curriculum. Then the senior students will be working, helping those younger students in the school greenhouse, but also working on the centre farm's farm where they're looking at having a larger greenhouse. That will then train people up with accredited qualifications to be able to be then employed in surrounding agricultural development. And that agricultural development at the moment is broadacre, broadacre food production, but they're also looking at large-scale protected cropping for, I think it's tomatoes. You know, it's where we start to create pathways for people in communities. And it's STEM and it's tech, it's visceral and visual, but it's, it, it connects with all those lovely STEM and horticultural and agricultural skills in a, in a really contemporary way. It does. And it also demonstrates to, to young people that there's more to the horticultural industry than picking produce. Picking produce is a very important part of it, but there's a lot of other areas within the horticultural industry, particularly when you start getting into technology. Um, they're using drones a lot more. They're using computer-based and app-based programs to run irrigation and mapping programs and all of that sort of stuff. A lot of speciality that students can, can get an interest in. They may be interested in just the growing process, but they may be also be very interested in the technology and want to run more with that. And you touched on, I suppose, and we've touched on a little bit the, the social enterprise or the, the agribusiness side of it, where we're going to be working with the local high school here in Catherine to develop a, an agribusiness unit for their middle school students where they'll be looking at doing a, a crop of herbs within a hydroponic growing system that will then include the harvesting, uh, the processing, marketing, packaging, distribution of that, of that product. So it's putting it, again, into a package uh, that is very much a STEM-focused package but incorporates you know, horticulture and food production. Mm. I was speaking to an academic the other day, or I think I might have heard it on the radio, that um, Southern Cross University, this year's enrolments in agriculture and horticulture are up 60%. So good to see. It's to do with the changes to arts degrees, but I think it's also just a, a fascination with sustainable agriculture. Okay, moving on to food security and the, and the big picture. In 2020, the Commonwealth House of Representatives Standing Committee on Indigenous Affairs held an important inquiry into food pricing and food security in remote Indigenous communities that Food Ladder, along with many others, contributed a submission to. The report was tabled last November and the National Indigenous Association of Australia and Committee will submit their final recommendations to Parliament in June 21. In parallel, the NIAA established a COVID-19 food security working group and supermarket task force, uh, and, they're, and they're doing really important work to ensure greater security of food supply and to address supply chain issues in the event of extreme events and, you know, events like a pandemic. The committee's work is very much focused on food stores licensing, ensuring regular and reliable supply of affordable and healthy food. And key issues include things like store stores upgrades of freezer facilities, along with more reliable electricity supply, which often gets cut off in remote areas so that food in freezers doesn't go to waste. Um, but it's also about better supporting and understanding local food production and supply, whether it's small abattoirs, support for community and ranger-based hunting, community gardens, farms and more. Although 
actual support for more local food production seems to be a little bit up in the air. That's a pretty long-winded context and intro, I know. But I wanted to ask you, given your depth of experience in the Territory, numerous food security inquiries, numerous workshops that we've all worked on over the years, what do you think might be the most powerful mix of store-based and local food production action to deliver real and lasting benefits for greater food security and fresh food for remote communities. And obviously, you believe food ladders are part of the, the picture. But given your depth of experience at CDU and uh, with ranger groups and, you know, conservation land management and training and horticulture and so forth, what are some of the other local food production things that you think that you've seen that could really be expanded? Well, I think that the whole food security one has really come to light with with COVID. If there's any benefits to come out of COVID, it's definitely the focus now on food security in remote and regional areas. It's not a new issue. It has been around for a very long time. Yet stores are definitely doing a lot of work in the way of, you know, providing healthy choices, looking at at, at what they're what they're putting in the stores and preferential pricing even in some of them yeah prefer, preferential pricing you know AIG for example in one of their stores are now selling or well, store near Catherine are now selling fruit and veg for the same price that you can buy it at Woolworths in Catherine and as a result of that they've already seen a dramatic increase in the in the sale of fresh produce so those sorts of things you know we, we look at as really encouraging. But I think there's still that that problem that, you know, a lettuce that is sitting on a community store shelf in the Northern Territory was probably picked about four to six weeks ago and has probably travelled around 4,000 kilometres to get here. It's been through at least three different distribution and similar warehouses and transport warehouses. You know, when this, when this produce is getting to the community stores, the shelf life on it is a real problem. I think there, you know, we still need to look at that focus on getting community-based food production as a, as a real thing. You know, there's all the other benefits that come with food production and, and horticultural work from, you know, social and emotional well-being to education and training to all sorts of other programs that you can fit in around a community garden type model. Even if it's to take some of the pressure off the reliance of produce coming from interstate, you're never going to be able to grow everything in one location. We're not going to be able to grow potatoes and carrots and, you know, cold, cold climate um, crops up here. But we can grow leafy greens, we can grow tomatoes, we can grow cucumbers. All of that can be eggplants. There's a whole range of stuff that can be grown very well locally. And the, and the superfoods like bananas and papayas. and Yeah, and that's what we find. that Even with, with the Catherine Project, which started as a greenhouse, um, has now developed into outdoor gardens. So we've got our intensive crops, leafy greens and vine crops that we're doing in the greenhouse. But we also have a surrounding garden space and that's where, yeah, we do have bananas, pawpaws, pineapples. But we're also seeing a huge demand for both bush foods, locally locally grown and locally available bush foods and locally grown and locally available bush medicines. Even in, in remote communities, a lot of people don't have the ability to go into the surrounding areas to do wild harvest of these, of these plants. So we're seeing quite a quite a demand coming now for communities saying, well, we want easy access to these bush medicines. We've been, we're in working with a clinic up here uh, that's looking at setting up a bush medicine garden 
within the, cl the clinic grounds so that they can offer both-way medicine to clients of theirs in community without the need, particularly for the old people, to be going bush to get their, so get these plants. The bush food industry is, is taken, has taken off within Australia. Uh, the demand for Indigenous, Indigenous bush foods has never been higher than what it is now. So that's creating other economic opportunities for community-based food production. And that's, and that's through distribution around the country and overseas. It's more than just produce, producing fruit and veg to go into the store. You know, there's been communities that have, that have had quite successful gardens where they're doing produce boxes. And those produce boxes then get delivered out to all the families in a community. Because quite often our, the communities we're working with may be, you know, between 200 and 600 people as a population. Quite often they'll be at least an hour to four hours from a, from a regional centre. So, uh, you know, what we call a Woolworths or an IGA type, type supermarket. Yeah, the more that can be produced in that community, the better. And it does, it does also help in times of isolation. So, you know, we get it up here every year where the rivers come up. And once the rivers have come up, the communities are shut off. So, again, having community-based growing systems will take the pressure off that, that demand for fresh produce in communities. And, you know, if we can work with the stores and have the stores as part of the program and part of the project, I think, it, you know, it's something that is a model for, model for success. Uh, we've seen stuff that we're producing here in Catherine go down to, um, again, one of the local community stores. And as a result of that, they instantly saw an increase in the sales of that was tomatoes and eggplants. They instantly saw an increase in the sales of those lines within the store because the people were happy to buy locally produced or locally grown produce. And it was so much fresher on the shelf and had that, you know, extended shelf life. Yeah, no, local and regional, wherever you are, if you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, Scott, I'm fascinated. You know, I've known there's a huge demand for locally grown bush foods and bush medicines. Is that because uh, people reconnecting with culture, greater demand for it? But how much of it is also um, that people can't access land or that people are older and can't get onto land? Is it sort of a mix of all those things or...? Look, it is a mix of all of those things, and I think on the particularly the remote communities themselves, you are you are looking at a population that do sit very below the poverty line. They may not have access to a vehicle, so you know their harvesting of bush bush foods and bush medicines is very much limited to you know the community environs themselves. When a lot of these a lot of these plants are growing all over their country. Um, but they don't have that means to get onto country to be able to act to to get them. So you know we're seeing that popping up as more and more of a a, a thing. There's also a, a a big push, particularly with the older people, to teach the young generation about these plants and what they're used for and how they're how they're harvested, how they're processed, and the uses that they they have. Uh, there's an organisation or group in. Catherine called the Bunninjar Women's Group, part of Jarwin Association. And that is a group of, of female elders, women elders. They're all predominantly the old ladies from the Big Rivers, Catherine region. And they've, they really want to pass this knowledge on to the young people. 
So as part of that, we've actually set up setting up, I think it's going to be launched next week, a demonstration bush medicine garden here in Catherine where the, the Bunninjar women can have cultural workshops with the young people. They've also got a site about 50 kilometres outside of Catherine where, again, they've got an established bush foods garden that they're looking at expanding with, with more types of plants and bush medicines where they're running cultural camps. And the idea, again, of those camps is to get that knowledge across to the younger generation so that these stories remain and the culture is retained. Yeah, and that's that's a beautiful legacy or ongoing project that's just building upon so many things, isn't it? There is that wonderful Jawoin uh, Languages Animals and Plants book that Glenn Whiteman worked with um, elders for a number of years to really produce that book and, and, and consolidate and share, transmit that knowledge. It's so fantastic to hear it's still going strong. I was going to ask a question about, you know, food grant, competitive grants for local food production and those sorts of things, but I think that's just a bit curly. I don't know that we know where that's going to be coming from at the moment. <laughs> but I just, but, but what I, what really struck me from a conversation I had with some people from the NIAA a while ago, was that clearly they're very focused on making sure that stores are licensed, resourced, have adequate, have adequate, you know, really powerful freezers and storage capacity for the wet season and for the year. As you say, people get stores get cut off, mm-hmm. um, so they need to have stores with storage <laughs> yep. and 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 electricity that doesn't break down, so that food doesn't go off. Mm. And I just sort of thought, you know, in a changing climate. Many parts of Australia are going to be seeing 40 to 50 degree days on a regular basis. You just can't grow an outdoor garden in that. It'll poach, you know. Um, so if we do want a diversity of healthy foods, you know, whether we like it or not, we'd all love local and regional fresh, but it may be we need really good frozen food, complemented and augmented by as fresh as possible local regional produce as possible. And in many situations in very extreme uh, climates, or poor soils or, you know, uh, remote areas. It may well be that, you know, protected agriculture is the pathway of the future along with really good fresh food frozen. <laughs> what do you think about that? Look, I think I think it's going a, a good step in, you know, making sure that you, know, you do have an ample supply of healthy and nutritious food in the community. We looked at some of the pricing issues that, that exist and one of the things that really jumped out through the inquiry and through a lot of the, the social media and everything that, that went with it last year, that if you've got $20 to spend in a store on food, are you going to spend $10 on a lettuce or are you going to spend $3 on a box of frozen chicken nuggets? And I think that's uh, one of the, the big issues that, that we're facing. And that's where, again, you know, some stores have very much changed their pricing of healthy, nutritious foods, whether it's fresh produce, frozen frozen veggies or similar, to make them much more affordable because that is starting to make a difference. Affordability is the key issue. But one of the, you know, there's background issues behind that as well because, you know, the reality of a lot of Indigenous communities is that the houses themselves are on prepaid power and in many cases don't have power. A lot of houses don't have a free. A lot of houses don't have cooking facilities. They're cooking on fires outside the house. So in one sense, it's great to have stuff in, you know, healthy, nutritious stuff within a store, but we also need to look at how how that food is going to be stored once it leaves the store, 
how is it going to be to be cooked and trying to work with the community to to educate the community on how they can using limited resources still produce or cook and prepare healthy meals for for family mm. so i think yeah there's you know the issue around supply into stores and uh, what's available in stores is one thing, but it's also the issues around the community itself. Yeah, absolutely, and crowded houses and kitchens that don't have freezers and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Very, very good point. Um, just moving along, the Close the Gap report 2021 came out this week and, um, you know, the new arrangement with government, the Commonwealth and the states and all the peaks, and it really is just a breath of fresh air and achievement. It's pretty exciting, really. Still lots of challenges, of course, but amazing achievements and a real change in the language and the outlook and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what it really demonstrated in so many ways and quite a few people speaking at the launch spoke about how, um, you know, when you give power to Aboriginal-owned organisations, uh, owned and controlled organisations like the health services and the nachos and so forth, that they will, people do, pe- these people are incredibly resilient and they do come up with solutions that work and the world-leading achievement of Australia's first peoples yep. in managing COVID for their own people ha- is just something we should all be so proud of and so excited about because we were also worried when COVID first broke. Mm-hmm. Turning that incredible power and resilience, if you like, to food security, yep. what invitations or call-outs might perhaps you or Food Ladder like to make to organisations like AMSANT and Aboriginal health-owned organisations and nachos, just in terms of how you might wish to support or work with Aboriginal-owned and controlled community and health organisations tackling food security? Yeah, look, I think, you know, the message to go out to all of those organisations is don't stop, don't stop. There's a momentum at the moment like I haven't seen in, you know, 30-plus years. <laughs> Don't stop. Uh, but we need to carry that momentum and, and drive that momentum to make real things happen on the ground. You know, one of, the, one of the things you hear a lot is, oh, yeah, there's lots of talk, there's lots of talk. And talk is great because talk can solve problems, but talk doesn't actually make a, make a difference on the ground. We need to see the follow-through of projects being implemented in communities that are, that are actually making a difference. And I think another really important thing, and, you know, it has come out in the closing the gap stuff as well, is that there needs to be open two-way learning. I'm learning as much off the Indigenous people of this region as they're probably learning off me. I may be learning more from them that the knowledge mm. that they have of the land, of the plants, of the climate is is immense and we need to we need to listen to the local people and to the communities and and take on their knowledge because that will then help us to develop programs that are going to work long term on community got to be that two way learning model can go into a community and I can teach them how to how to produce good lettuce and tomatoes out of a hydroponic growing system mm-hmm. but I'm relying on the communities to teach me how to best grow and manage native plants, um, so the bush medicine plants and the bush food plants. You know how to how to work with their climate and to work with their country to get the best outcomes. So it is a you know a really important thing that communities and the people on the communities need to be at the table. We need to learn from them and to you know and to work with them. Mm-hmm. So Amsant the. Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance of the Northern Territory will be having a food security summit in Alice Springs in June this year. And I'm sure you, your colleagues and uh, 
many others like you working in this important space will be there and contributing to it. Just moving towards uh, t- towards a bit of a wrap-up, how can people best get in touch with you or with Food Ladder uh, to to talk about projects and and or to support what you do? I suppose, you know, social media and, and the internet are probably the, the best ways to track us down. You know, we're on we're on Facebook where we have a, a food ladder, food ladder website. You know, through the social media and the website, we talk about all our projects, our programs, the resources that we have available to communities. Food ladder platform, which has all our resources, isn't just limited to communities that have a food ladder growing system communities that have some form of farm program or food production program be it within the school or the community can still access that that platform and it's a it's a registration process where we get the someone from the community to register um, at no cost uh, they then have access to a huge amount of resources and knowledge that we've we've put up there and we then invite people to contribute to that and all we're sort of really asking from the from the communities or the schools that sign up to the platform is to get a bit of a feedback from them about how many kids or how many people do they have involved in their gardens? What are they growing? What are they producing? What are they doing with their produce? So we can then use that to help lobby and to help collect data, be it for the Charles Perkins Institute in Sydney or for AMSANT. Uh, but data that we can say, well, you know, this is a difference that community-based food production is making. These are, you know, this is a amount of people in the community that are involved in this. This is the amount of people in the community that are benefiting. All of that is available through our website. Food Ladder are a charity as well, so you know, anyone wishing to invest ethically, donate ethically. We're happy to always happy to talk to you, and that is how you know these school greenhouse projects are, are actually happening. It is is through donation from from corporations, from private people. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? The best of um, not the best of um, the cutting edge of urban agriculture. Yeah, in in remote town and community settings in in climates of extreme change um that's what protected agriculture is all about really isn't it yeah it is and it's it's being climate ready and it's also making sure that we can we can produce as much produce as we can with limited resources within a within a community and we find that our projects become a hub they become a hub for for as a community garden as you would have a community garden in a in a um, suburban area of a large city that you know connects in with with everyone in that community. That's the same sort of overall social model that that we're looking at in the remote communities that we're working with. Yeah, community kitchens, markets, all the rest. Yeah. Okay. Then, any other call outs, special people, projects, supporters you might like to make? Look, you know, we're we're supported by so many different organisations, and we're working with so many great organisations. Uh, probably too many to actually to me- to me- to mention, but that's where we're we're open to work with anyone. Really, if people have got ideas or projects. They're, they're looking for advice. They're looking to partner or anything like that. Where we're there and available to talk to people, um, because our overall goal is to see an, an improvement in the uptake 
of fresh produce in remote and regional areas. Scott, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's very nice to catch up with you again after all these years and just to see the inspiring work you're doing, as always, but with a new organisation. Congratulations. Thank you. And, yeah, same. It's great to see that, you know, the Remote Indigenous Gardens Network has, you know, developed into Food Swell and and Nourishing Matters because uh, the more we can get good information out there, get good advice out there, the better. I've been speaking with my friend and long-standing colleague, Scott McDonald, who currently lives and works with, from Catherine in the Northern Territory, and I'm really excited to see what he's doing. He's now the training and horticulture manager with the amazing Food Ladder, who are just getting out there and on with it to grow protected agriculture across Australia and in developing countries. To learn more about who they are, what they do, and very importantly, to support them, visit foodladder.org. And if you are a school who'd like to be in the running for one of their fabulous school size hydroponic systems, also visit their site and get your entry short and sweet in by the 1st of May. Scott, thanks so much for speaking with me and uh, have a fantastic weekend. You're welcome. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via apple podcasts stitcher spotify google or wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via instagram at nourishing matters or foodswell australia as this is a new podcast we'd really value your support so please give us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app so other people can find us too Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.